episode of EdTech Hour is brought to you by the Educational Psychology Technology Program at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. The Chicago School's mission is integrating the values of education, innovation, service, and community. The Chicago School provides students innovative and practitioner-based learning experiences in which they're able to positively impact others around the world and address issues faced by underserved populations. Through collaboration of university administration, faculty, and students, the EdTech Hour was created in order to pursue our vision of innovation and global outreach. This monthly podcast series will include thought leaders from around the world who will discuss relevant issues centered not only on technology, but also the impact of technology on humanity. Speakers will provide listeners with stories of how they have impacted learners, employees, and communities through the pursuit of understanding how individuals learn and use technology to improve performance. This show provides a global medium to share and promote various issues and developments in learning and how professionals are utilizing technology. By listening to this show, I hope that you are able to develop a unique insight into how you can incorporate similar topics and trends into your own professional settings. I look forward to learning more about our topic with you throughout this episode. All right. Um, Welcome, everybody. Uh, My name is Sonomar Villegas, and I'm a doctoral student at the uh, Chicago School of Professional Psychology. Uh, And I am here with Nicholas Monroe, uh, who's currently working as a lecturer at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in South uh, Africa. And um, Nicholas, welcome. And I would like for you to tell us a little bit about your background. What kind of led you to your current profession? um, And tell us about your research interests as well. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, So I'm trained as a counseling psychologist. Um, Maybe I think it was about 20 years ago, I finished my training in counseling psychology and then worked, have mostly worked in university student counseling centers. Um, So I'm sure you're familiar with the student counseling setup, but most of my work was offering individual and group-based therapy to students and assisting students with uh, study-related problems as well, not only personal psychological problems. So after about 10 years in working full-time as a a practicing psychologist in student counseling context, it got a bit too much for me. I found it was very emotionally draining. I'm sure many of you know the challenges that students go through. Um, So it's it's a very difficult work environment. You don't have much control over your workday and because uh, you're booked normally back-to-back with clients, and then maybe on weekends you're running workshops, sometimes dealing with crises. So the, the field of academia seemed much more appealing to me, and it, it is. Um, uh, I would never um, want to go back into support services at university. So academia is a much better place. to. It's much easier to work in, ironically, despite the publication pressures. So uh, maybe it was about five to seven years ago, I did a PhD in higher education studies. I was interested in learning and academic achievement because of my work with university students and how to enhance their university studies and educational outcomes. So that really led to my current research field. Um, And towards the end of the PhD, I was offered an an academic post, which is what I, I wanted. So I've stopped. I don't do much applied psychological work anymore. Occasionally, I'll do some pro bono work 
for example, at the moment, I work on a helpline assisting frontline healthcare workers who are at the front line of the COVID pandemic in South Africa. So uh, two hours a week, I uh, answer calls dealing with nurses and doctors who are under a lot of pressure and stress. But uh, I won't do individual work anymore. I think I experienced some uh, burnout and compassion fatigue. So now the students have to listen to me instead of the other way around. Um, so I do teach in psychology. I teach on the counseling psychology program. Um, I teach in assessment and therapeutics and research methods um, and do teach on some educational psychology modules as well. So my, my research at the moment is really focused on learning and academic achievement in, in the student population. Um, and uh, my current area of interest, which is related to the chapter that, uh, that you've read, is on the emotions that might drive motivation and learning and academic achievement outcomes. Um, so most of my research and publications have been in the area of higher education studies, uh, learning and academic achievement, um, some in the area of food insecurity among university students. So a lot of the work or all of the work feeds into how do students, how do they learn and how do they excel academically. And because I'm a counselling psychologist, we operate from a strengths-based uh, perspective. Um, so a lot of the work that we did at student counselling, I dealt on a daily basis with students who were having problems. And psychology, the practice of psychology often comes from a deficit model where we're looking for what is wrong with the student, what is wrong with the client, and how do you remediate that? And so I've moved into an area of work that tries to look at how do we work with strengths, how do we enhance functioning, and hence my interest in working with high-functioning students. So there's a lot of research on, on students who fail, students who underperform, and I wanted to tackle the issue of learning and achievement from the, the high-achieving end of the spectrum. Very interesting. Um, I, I Like I said, I had the privilege of reading your your chapter it's titled visualizing achievement emotions through fo photo elicitation interviews a methodology for generating data on the dialectical tensions between pride sadness and hope among high achieving undergraduate students which you co-wrote with terry shuttleworth um, so to me it was very interesting due to my um you know, some of my background is is a little bit similar. My master's uh, was also in counseling psychology, um, but I worked in in elementary schools with the kids, um, and that I, I experienced almost the same thing um, of just the the traumas that they went through. I just carried it with me, um, and then you know, the piece of not really being able to change anything in their lives. Like I wanted to change everything so it would be better. So I can sympathize with that. Um, so in reading, like I said, in reading your work, I reflected quite a bit, just thinking about myself as a student and, and what I encountered with students. Um, and, and you've already done this uh, in your introduction, you've explained the main premise of the investigation and what led you to investigate the topic. Um, tell us about your methodology, because it, that was really interesting how you chose to approach this. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, we, so Terry was one of, she did her master's degree a few years ago, 
And so her study, I supervised her study, and so some of the data comes from her master's degree. Um, but yes, we also think the methodology is innovative. And I presented the work at a conference at the European Association for Research on Learning and Instruction in 2018. And then with some, then I was invited to collaborate on a book on methodologies in higher education. And so the book publishers wanted to prioritize methodologies and different ways of exploring um, higher education studies. Um, so photo elicitation, photo voice, autophotography, and photo elicitation interviews are part of uh, visual methods, which I think have actually been used more so in primary and secondary education studies. Um, but essentially, I was interested in doing something more than just interviewing students or administering a survey. Um, so I, I think because of my background, uh, I do like to conduct research that gives the participants something as well. And that was really what we found in, in carrying out the study through this method, was that if you ask a participant to take photographs of and use a particular prompt. So in this uh, chapter, the prompt was to please take photographs of anything that reflects your academic activity, either now or historically. And then when the participant comes back and sits with you and has an interview with you, they lead the research process, showing you the photographs, explaining why they took it and what the photograph entails. And really the, the participant leads the, in, in essence, leads the, the research process. So I don't know if you want me to talk a bit more about the methodology or um, does that give you some idea? Of it what does, yeah, no, and it was, I can see where that's really powerful, um, where they are deeply reflecting on that as they're, as they're identifying, okay, what do I want to take a picture of? So um, I had never heard that being used in research. So really interesting and something I'm going to put in my pocket for the future. I, I think it was really good. Um, and so in the, um, there was, yeah, there was a couple of things you touched on that I wrote questions um, for you about. Um, I think you've explained what drove you to use images um, in the, the study. Um, it, 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 it is participant driven. It is, it allows for a deeper reflection than just words. Um, yeah. so, um, and I also just said, you make the point in the chapter as well, that it's so prevalent amongst youth and everyone today, everyone's taking photographs, posting them on social media, getting into trouble with the pictures that you put on social media. So I think it also, it resonates really well with young, with young people, young adults and students. That is a great point. And I do remember um, reading that. So on that note, um, you, what impact, um, you know, to make it, you mentioned also that in a lot of research, it's so researcher driven versus participant driven. Um, you decided, um, and I can see that kind of resonating through, I, I like to go through a strengths-based approach. So it's very participant driven, um, almost like in the education world, student-centered. Um, and I love that approach. Um, so what, um, what made you decide to go in that direction particularly? And then um, 
ultimately, what impact do you think that this had in the outcome of your um, of your your study, and even on yourself? Like, what impact did that have on you? Yeah, well, maybe I must make it explicit. I think it's a very small line in the chapter that the data that's used in these chapters comes from larger mixed method studies. So they were, so the qualitative data, the participant driven component was embedded in a much larger uh, mixed method studies, both of the studies. So they, but that, I don't think that that means that you couldn't do it on its own. You couldn't use participant driven and photographic uh, styles of researching independently. Um, but I think it, you know, it really does, just as you were saying, I, I, I think it, it depends on what you believe is important in the research process, that you're not just going to, to gather information, but you want to produce data um, in a collaborative way with your research participants. So I guess it's about the way in which you frame and the way in which you approach your, your work and your existence, and you want to um, have that carried out in your research. So I think that's the, the reason why we included this element, because it is creative. We wanted the participants to enjoy it. And I think for myself and for Terry, both all of the interviews, not all of them, but many of them were deeply personal experiences. So although I kind of moved away from doing therapy, I won't say they were therapeutic experiences for the students, but they were emotionally charged interviews about how students study. I mean, if you think about what's more boring than thinking about keeping a diary and planning your time and memorizing work. So those are not, those are generally not exciting topics, emotional topics to talk about. But the, many of our interviews were very emotionally charged. You know, you produce a photograph of a family member who's supporting you financially while you're studying. And you can, even as I say it, I can re recall the emotions that are attached and then the emotions that um, come out of the conversation about that photograph. Um, whereas I think it's different if you just ask a student, you know, why are you studying so hard? Why are you excelling? They can tell you about their, their mother who has sacrificed or whatever it might be, but to see it in front of them as well, you know, in a photograph, definitely helps evoke emotions at a deeper level. So yes, I, I think it, yeah, it affected both Terry and I in our research process. They were, it was enjoyable and meaningful, um, much easier to write about as well, because we, I'll never forget, I mean, the data we collected is probably a good six, between four to six years old now, but we know those participants so well because of the, the connection that we feel we had with them during the interview process. Yeah, I can see where it draws the emotion. I mean, I, like I said, I'm just keeping reflecting, like, what if it was me? What would I bring to the table? And if you were to ask me, I would say, well, my family, you know, my family is what drives me. But if you tell me bring photos of, you know, I would have much deeper, I would show you an image of my father and tell a story behind it, why I'm doing that. So I, I, um, I can see how it would impact me and give deeper data um, yeah. versus just telling you about it. I mean, I'm just fascinated by that method. I think it was a good, um, very effective 
method and using to elicit more of that emotion, which is what you wanted to elicit. So, um, and in this chapter, uh, you honed in on the, the three emotions, which was pride, sadness, and hope as the most prevalent. Um, so you found that even sadness in this particular research or this, this part of it, um, served as an activating function Mm -hmm. for academic achievement. Can you tell us a little bit about what the significance of that is? Um, How can that impact um, support, knowing that impact, support then the way we provide um, supports and um, just really anything student support-wise for higher education students. So finding that, I found that to be interesting because you mentioned that most people uh, or most research, excuse me, um, sees that as a deactivating function. So talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, it it was interesting. And I, I don't know whether if we did a similar study with students who were failing or dropping out, I suspect that we might find that the sadness was a deactivating emotion and contributed to failure. So there's no doubt that our sample is, they were all high achieving students, highly functional, have a history of being highly functional in the academic environment. So there's no doubt that, that we found, that we were going to find activating emotions. So it's certainly biased in that sense, but, it is useful because I think sometimes we. It's interesting because we. I think we're scared that if if we if we find sadness in students or hurtful emotions, that those are always dysfunctional. And I think that that's the point that this finding has is that even high achieving students experience pain and loss and sadness, but somehow there's something in that that helps them continue and helps them try and achieve more. Um, I'm not sure what that is yet. Um, And I think that maybe that's something for for future researchers that maybe we do have to, not have to, but maybe we could conduct research using this method with students who are on the brink of dropping out and looking at how sadness in their experiences either activates or deactivates their motivation and what they do. Um, yeah, I do see that quite a bit um, in my work. Mm. Go ahead, sorry. No, but I, I guess I'm thinking educationally as a as a lecturer. Um, I think that in colleagues in other disciplines, when when I worked in student support services, would be scared of students who were upset or crying. That that they would phone student support and say, "I've got a student crying." they must come and see you. And so I think in some sense, it might speak to not just being, um, not trying to avoid emotions, that we can use them, even painful and negative emotions uh, shouldn't be avoided in the educational space, Um, that teachers can use them or hopefully can use them in ways to help students carry on. Right. It's about how do you, how do you shift it from a, from being deactivating to, activating it to help them be more successful. Um, And and what this kind of made me think of was you would look at one family and you would see 
um, it, this is kind of what helped me uh, comprehend and, and internalize. But you'll see families where um, there's maybe one or two successful kids, and then there's one that just struggles. And people will say, well, I don't understand because they were raised in the same house, you know. So what I kept thinking of is what triggers that to be activating for two, you know, whatever trauma or difficulties they've gone through. But then there's that one that it just, it it doesn't allow them to propel. So what is it about, you know, there's something else there, which is what you're saying is, I don't know what that is. Um, But what is it that changes that dynamic, which is, I think, um, I think that we are getting to the point, even in K-12 education, where we want to know that and we want to recognize that there is emotion and learning. And I'm not sure how it is for you for for in in South Africa, but in, in the United States, there's a big push right now for social emotional learning in K through 12, because we recognize we've turned education into a you sit and listen and we talk and that's it. There's no emotion. There's no teaching life skills. It's, it's just is what it is. So you think about by the time they get to upper education, higher education, the impact we need to make when they're younger to help with that. So, um, very, very interesting. Um, I wanted to add that as you, so I don't think we should think of the emotions that came out dominantly as independent. So the, the pride, the sadness, and the hope were the three most prevalent emotions amongst our sample. But now that we're talking, I'm thinking, I remember that the sadness doesn't exist in isolation, but maybe for these high achieving students, it's somehow linked to hope. So although there's sadness, it's about what maybe you've left behind or what your family has sacrificed or who isn't around anymore, but it's linked to uh, hope for the future. So maybe that is one way that we can work, that if students do experience sadness in relation to their learning journeys, that educators could try and find some hope to it. So I think sadness without hope deactivates, but sadness with hope has a better chance of helping you move through it and and live with it and excel with it. And is that where that kind of links um, back to what you said about using a strengths-based approach versus a deficit model? Because we tend to say, well, why are you sad? And we we stay in that emotion for them versus saying, you know, how can we shift that? How do we focus on their strengths to overcome? Is that kind of your thinking there? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. All right. Um, it, it's making me think about so many things as, as I think, and I, and I'll share this with you. Um, one of the high schools that, that I have, it's, a um, it's actually seventh grade through 12th grade, but we get a lot of at-risk students. So students mm-hmm. who are deficient, some of them, um, are 20 years old and they still only have enough credits to be a ninth grader. Um, So we have to try and find ways to motivate uh, them to finish. And so as you're talking, I'm processing, uh, you know, what can I do in in my school? So it's, it's, you'll see me kind of thinking about that because it's, it's just so, it's so impactful um, to hear the research and what you've learned. So I truly appreciate that. Um, So, 
I want to kind of shift um, because a lot of what you've experienced and what I learned about when I went to South Africa, you mentioned in, in a couple of spots, just very briefly, um, that South African higher education it has undergone a major shift over the last 25 years since apartheid, right? And you mentioned that there were inequalities then and that they still exist today. Um, can you talk to us about what you've um, seen yourself or, or what you feel are those inequalities? And then how do you think that then um, that has, um, when we think about um, emotions and, and success in higher education, um, how that's impacted all of that? Mm. Well, so historically, inst universities and in fact, every sector of society in South Africa was organized according to race pre-1994, but that has subsequently changed. Um, but some universities um, seem to have still, still maybe haven't transformed to the extent that others have both racially and in terms of ideology. So the, the COVID pandemic is a very good example. Um, the university that I work at has gone through a merger process. So it was the result of a merger between traditionally advantaged white, univer white university and a traditionally disadvantaged black university. So the University of KwaZulu-Natal is the result of a merger maybe 20, in 2002. Um, and so... It has gone through a, a major transformation. But other universities, um, so for example, the University of Cape Town, University of Stellenbosch, University of Pretoria, are very well-known universities globally. They rank in the top 200 in the world, you know, with the, with the rankings. They, they're really excellent universities, but haven't had the same level of transformation in terms of race as the University of KwaZulu-Natal and other institutions. And those universities, although impacted by COVID, they haven't had the they don't have the same student body. So their their students they draw students who are more um, from privileged backgrounds, who have access to data, who have laptops, who have internet. So those students, the shift to online learning has been, I think, very much more easier for them than it might have been for many of the students at the at the University of KwaZulu Natal. Um, so that, I think, is the, you know, the, the inequalities persist. There are residual effects of inequalities, um, I think, globally. Um, but in the higher education sector, it's, it's similar. It's the same kinds of um, inequalities that persist. Um, so, and you wanted to know how my research might play out in different Types of universities, was that uh, the question? Sorry, the mute button. No, I, I guess I was thinking about um, the, I'm stuck on the, the original purpose or um, not so much the methodology of how you did it, although um, we talked about that a little bit. But when I was thinking about um, the, the three emotions mm. and the specific inequalities that have occurred in, in South Africa, just how do you think that um, those type of situations impact 
um, the emotions of those students. So I was kind of thinking of all together what they've gone through, um, the inequalities. We talked about at the beginning um, how, you know, the students don't have necessarily access to um, internet and now they're having to school from home and the challenges that they're going. Um, so could that be something that is demotivating for them? And then how do we keep them motivating through through all of the, these challenges? Um, yeah. So that's kind of what I was thinking in the in that aspect. Yeah, I, I certainly think that some universities in South Africa, we all have the mantra of no student left behind, which I'm sure comes from the United States. I'm not sure when the no child left behind movement. And that what's really frustrating is that it's, it's easier for some institutions not to leave any student behind because the proportion that are vulnerable to being left behind is so small that it's easier not to leave them behind. But at other institutions, most students are vulnerable for being left behind. And so the volume of work for people working in those institutions is, is massive. And I, I think it must impact on, on emotions. Um, so we have, uh, I have Zoom meetings with our students. I found it really fascinating, those who are able to connect in. So we, we've, been, we've been advised not to hold lectures via Zoom because of the, the, the fact that it eats data. So we have to prepare audio recordings and import them into notes. Those are made available to students. They then look at it and then we would meet with them for half an hour, only half an hour to, for, to answer questions. I find it fascinating, you know, when they do, those who can log on do, and you can see where that they um, connecting from home, you know, they might have their cameras on briefly. It's, it's interesting to see where they're living, how they're living, who's in the background of the, the camera. But many students don't log in. So I had a meeting earlier today with a class of 250 and I had 30 participants. Who, so, I mean, that's a really low participation rate. And this was a seminar to discuss the final assessment, which is an online test that's happening in two weeks' time. Um, and so I think some don't even, not because they don't want to, but some don't even connect into, so the session's recorded. They'll be able to access it at a later stage. But I'm sure if... And then I had another meeting earlier with four honors students about a project and two or three of them kept connecting in and out. It is frustrating. Then the one connects back into the meetings and has to apologize that she missed the last five minutes because the connection's bad. I can hear the frustration in, in their voices. Um, but I am always consistently amazed at how determined some students are. Um, how determined they are to overcome the challenges and to keep persisting despite the challenges. Um, I, unfortunately, I haven't been able to conduct multi-institutional research. It is something that I would like to do in the next phase of my career. I think that we look at national research um, with multiple institutions. Um, and then that might be quite useful to do a comparison of students and emotions across multiple institutions. And, and one way to do that could be through the Achievement Emotion Questionnaire. You know, you know, there is that questionnaire that's been widely used. I think it probably would be easier to do as a, 
as the start of a research study across different kinds of institutions in South Africa to get to say, are there differences in the kinds of achievement emotions that UK ZN students have when compared to UCT or Pretoria or whatever it might be? Right, because you right now you know what you know, which is your you know your university and your population. Um, yeah. It's I, I can definitely. Um, again, empathize with that as, as, you know, being a virtual school, uh, we've, we've seen that, you know, with obviously with the K-12 population where we'll have sessions with kids and that's how we find out they're living in a hotel, you know, and we did not know that before. And I think for me, um, as, as an educational and educational leader, um, it has changed a lot of what I think, um, and it has taught me uh, not to make assumptions, um, to always get to know the students more and build those relationships because maybe it'll come out, you know, in a conversation, um, mm-hmm. especially when you see the struggling students. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can definitely empathize, you know, with with what you're what you're saying. Um, and so I wanted to talk about, um, I'm looking at my notes here, um, when, you, when you consider uh, what you know um, about academic achievement and, and your research on um, those emotions behind it, and then specifically now what you talked about with the pandemic, how do you... Um, how has that impacted you as, as a professor, as a lecturer, um, and how you interact with your students? And, and how do you think that that's going to shift um, your practice when you go back, you know, hopefully at some point we'll go back to the classroom. Um, what will this do for you on a personal level? Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, just reflecting my own experience, my own response to the pandemic at times feeling hopeless. You know, we've been talking about hope. But, uh, and I think that, you know, having dealt quite a lot with suicide risk and assessing clients who are at risk of suicide, we know that one of the main risks, you should be more concerned about a client if they show signs of hopelessness or not being helped. So those are two key indicators of suicide risk. And the same... In retrospect, I hope that I've been able to contain feelings of anxiety or fear with students. So our professional master's program students who are in training are very anxious because they are very far behind. They're not seeing the same amount of clients and they're very angry and very upset. But I think at the same time we try and, although we also don't know what's happening and where they're going, but we have tried to reassure them, not falsely so, but I hope that we've been able to contain the emotions and the frustration, but also offer some sense of hope that we will hopefully get through this. This is where we're heading. It might take a bit longer. Um, so I think it's to be able to manage both the emotions and also a forward orientation. Um, I think that that's what I've, I try to do. Maybe it's not necessarily because of the findings from my study, um, but I think in some ways they reiterate the findings from the study. Um, And also, I think it's really important to be reliable and, uh, you know, maybe it's back to the therapeutic (laughs) skills, but if I really try and respond to emails, 
I try and not you know, be available because they, I know that that might be containing and uh, offer students a sense of security and that, that someone, even though I might be falling apart, and I have had definite dips and, during the past few months where I've questioned my own purpose in life, what are, what are we doing, um, there's no hope, um, we're not going, you know, what's the point of living and so, but I've tried to maintain a sense, a steady sense of uh, stability for students. Yeah, um, and it makes you wonder, you know, if I'm feeling that way, you know, not not only the students you're connecting with, but the students you're not able to connect, it, it leaves you, um, so in a way, it, is that another, um, it kind of takes it back to the conversation um, at the beginning of, of when you worked in the clinical setting, it's almost like you're 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 back in there worrying about the students and kind of those same emotions, just kind of thinking about, um, are they okay? I have no control. We have no control, right? So that's hard. Um, and I think that it's going to impact in a lot of ways um, for educators and how they interact with students, just knowing um, the different struggles. I think we've learned more about students and their families through this pandemic because we have to, we have to understand their struggles to be able to help them. Um, so I, I'm uh, in a sense um, looking forward to this being over, not only because we want it to be over, but I think it's going to change society. And it, I think it's going to change the practice of education, um, not only in K through 12, but also in, in higher ed. Um, have there been any talks when we talk about, um, uh, you know, particularly with with uh, the Chicago School, um, our particular degree program is educational psychology. Um, has there been any discussions um, or any, uh, as far as the university and what we can do to better prepare if something like this happens in the future? Um, has any of that um, kind of discussion um, arisen uh, through the university or, or are we not there yet? I, no, we're not. I don't think we're there yet unless I have become quite, I wouldn't say immune, but uh, in the past I've been quite good at reading notices, but they come every day and some I'm selective about reading, yes. so maybe I've missed something, but and so one of the offers uh, Kelly made was for people from the Chicago School to run something for our staff on teaching online. And I said, that sounds great, but we have reached our ceiling. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, we've been flooded with training, which has been great. But I think that people in South Africa or at the university where I am have, have reached a ceiling of engaging with this. We want it to be over. I'm sure some people are imagining uh, ways and how, how to cope afterwards, um, but not that I'm aware of. Yeah. And, you guys want to be face to face with kiddos, yeah. Uh, well, not I kiddos; just, they're adults. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I'm not mad about the electronic. It doesn't feel the same. You have to do it though. But um, I would rather be physically in the classroom. But I know, you know, it might not be like that, and well, that's not the way. Yeah. Well, and I was going to say that the access, the lack of access is difficult. It, the fact that, that not 
there's no equity for your students, um, that would be a big driving force. I, I totally understand that. Um, unless we figure out how to get all students access, then we need to come into the classroom. So I, I can totally understand. Um, I just wondered if it, you know, is in my mind, how much of an impact is the pandemic going to have to change some of these systems? Um, but um, you've got to start with the communities first. And so if we don't get the, you know, um, accessibility to the communities and we can't do what we need to do at school. So totally get it there. Um, and I wanted to talk about, you know, there was another component of your article that you touched upon and you can kind of let me know where um, it fits in just to make sure that, that I'm understanding. But you talk about a little bit about social cultural aspects to, um, to the emotion that then drives the academic achievement. Mm -hmm. um, and I can definitely see um, particularly the, the culture that I witnessed in South Africa, just so many beautiful cultures, um, how that can impact different students in different ways. Um, and, and you make an important point um, about how the, there are globalization trends that are increasing the levels of cultural diversity everywhere, all around the world. Um, so can you talk to us a little bit about um, the social con uh, cultural components of society that impact emotions and kind of um, as far as in terms of this particular study and the use of images and did you see any um, I guess variances based on the different cultures or, or how did that interact with what you were doing um, specifically yeah. with the photographs and all of that? Yeah. I think one of the Maybe it's a, it is a weakness of the paper or the chapter. Ironically, the sociocultural theory that I draw on is based on Vygotskyan and Russian theory. So, and it has been a criticism that I've had of, of colleagues locally that there could be local theorists who provide a more contextually relevant theory to, to use. So, Yes, one of the criticisms of my own work is that it draws on Russian and Marxist frameworks as a socio-cultural perspective. But I think you're asking, are there cultural issues specific to South Africa yes. that have, have influenced um, the work? And, you know, ironically, I, I don't know if I've even thought about it like that. So... Just to explain from, the, from an activity theory perspective, which I think is aligned with my understanding of African conceptions of emotions, is that emotions are, they, they exist outside of individuals before, the, so we, we internalize them. They, they don't start in our heads. They don't start because we think something and then feel it. So a social cultural perspective from a Marxist perspective places emotions in the external world. Um, and that's where the collective hope or the collective pride, that's where the links to those collective emotions come from. So socioculturally, we're placing emotions in the space around all of us, not in the head of, of a person. Um, so I think that that's, 
that was the point of the social cultural perspective. But I, and I also think it's aligned with African perspectives on emotions and thoughts, that they don't exist in our heads. They do, but that's not the main source of where they are. They exist between people first. They exist historically and culturally. And it's through interacting with each other that we experience emotions and maybe start to experience them internally. I'm not sure if that makes sense. It's yes, it does. I'm processing. So I think yeah. about, I think that what I saw a lot of um, when I was there in, in certain cultures is it was a collect, everything was very community-based and collective. So you think about it being external, I can, I can visualize that. So I'm, I'm processing definitely what you're saying. And when you talk about it being in our heads and in us and, and the way that it's brought in, do you mean that um, in early childhood it's brought in that way? Like I think about my, I have a four-year-old and that, you know, they do um, Zoom classes with him and they'll say, what is he feeling? You know, what is, they'll show a little boy crying, you know, what is, what, what's happening? You know, oh, he's crying. Well, why is he crying? You know, so that teaching him of that's what that emotion looks like. Yes. And then he internalized yes. that. Well, he's yes. sad. Is, yes. Okay. That's kind yes. of what I, I was think, thinking about. Yes. In some ways, if you, I'm sure you've covered the differences between Vygotsky and Piaget and the internalization versus the externalization. I think that it resonates with those theoretical ideas as well. Um, I think Piaget, isn't it about go from inside out, whereas Vygotsky's theory from outside, outside in, in? Yeah. It's that same kind of principle for emotions. I think we all think that emotions are in us, but from a social cultural perspective, it questions that emotions don't exist within us, but they exist in the collective. And we might take them on and experience them internally, but they don't originate in us. They originate historically and culturally. And we come to know them by participating in those cultures. Um, and that's why those images of people in your academic achievement, like I mean, you're the one who's achieving and getting the marks, but it's not just about you. It's got your teachers are involved, your parents are involved, your aunt who is deceased, who you think said to you that she wants you to become a famous whatever it is. You know, it's it, there's a long history of other people involved in how you feel and what you what you do in your your studies. And so is that that's kind of where then the photo eliciting. Um, is very effective. Not only, as you said, for, I can imagine it was very um, therapeutic for them to be able to process that, reflect, and bring that forward where all of that is coming from, but also yeah. for, for you to be able to, um, again, I love that methodology. I'm trying to think of where I can put that um, in, in future studies. Yeah. Um, so I think... Um, uh, that was actually the, the last, uh, question I had for you. Um, I truly appreciate you taking the time to speak to us. Um, I look forward to reading more work from you. I think you are, I saw yesterday you're on research gate. Um, so just being a, um, having been a counseling psychologist myself in the, in the past, um, working with students that, are um, 
you know, struggle with, with achievement. Um, I think that the work that you've written can be very valuable. Um, bring me some insight. So I look forward to it. Um, again, I appreciate you taking the time to speak to us. Um, and um, I wish you the absolute best in South Africa. I hope things get better and that you get back to the classroom soon. Thank you very much. And thank you for your, I mean, I'm really impressed with the with the level of your preparation and the fact that you could ask me such difficult questions about my chapter. Thank you very much for preparing so well. Um, it's been great as well to speak about it. You know, you write stuff and you hope one person reads it. <laughs> At least you're the one person who's I'm read it. I'm the one person and it was, uh, it, it had me enthralled. I read it several times because every time I read, I picked up different things. So thank you so much. Thank very, you very, very much. Thank you for listening to this edition of EdTech Hour. I'm Dr. Kelly Torres, the Department Chair of the Educational Psychology and Technology Program of the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. This podcast was completed through the support of our dedicated faculty, staff, and students. To learn more about the Educational Psychology Technology Program, or if you're interested in being on the EdTech Hour podcast, please reach out to me at ktorres at the chicagoschool.edu.